Uh, we are going to come now to our time in the Word. Uh, you can open up to Acts chapter 2, the end of Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Uh, we, we are in the second week of a short series called Devoted. We do this uh, at the beginning of each year just to remind ourselves who we are, why are we doing what we're doing. Uh, as the title of the series suggests, uh, we are looking at what the early Christians devoted themselves to and allowing that to remind us who we are striving to be as a church and, and why we are doing what we're doing. Uh, so if you have your Bible sitting there in front of you, uh, I'm going to read uh, these verses, the same verses we were in uh, last week uh, with, a, with a little bit of a different focus. Acts 2, starting in verse 42. Listen as I read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. This is God's word. Would you pray with me briefly just one more time? Lord, this is your word, and, and we know that uh, your word gives life, uh, that these words are, are good for our souls, uh, that these words are true and, and sufficient, uh, able to instruct us and uh, nourish us and feed us. And so, Lord, we pray now that by your Spirit you would minister uh, your word to our hearts, uh, that you would speak to us, uh, that we would have a sight of Jesus Christ again that we would rest in him again and, uh, and move out towards one another in love as a response to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Are you guys awake? You with me? Okay, okay there we go. Uh, are, are you guys aware of this uh, trend where fan clubs of celebrities will give themselves a catchy name? Uh, so, for example, like if you're a fan of Justin Bieber... You're called, do you know what it is? You're a believer. The, the fan club of just, they're all called believers. Or if you're uh, a really big fan of Taylor Swift, uh, the, those fans are called Swifties. Here, here, here are my two favorites in my extensive research. <laughs> if you're a fan of Twilight, you remember those books, the vampire books? You're, you're, you're a twihard. You die hard, twihard. Uh, this one's even more remote. Uh, if you're a fan of, there's a whole fan club for Chris Pine. Do you know who Chris Pine is? He was in like Star Trek. He's, he's an actor. Can you guess what they're called? Pine nuts. <laughs> Pine nuts. Now, now, these are silly examples, but what they represent is a universal spiritual reality. And it's this. Worship forms community. Worship forms community. In other words, community is not so much formed when we admire each other. Community is formed 
when we admire the same thing together. Last week, we were reminded that the early Christians devoted themselves to God's Word, to the apostles' teaching, which powerly reveals Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah and Savior who dies in our place on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and gives us new life in Him. We were reminded that the gospel word creates spiritual life in people who were dead in their sin. But what I want you to see this morning is that that same gospel word that creates spiritual life in us as individuals also creates a new community. And not a mere fan club either. That gospel word creates a fellowship and a family as we look to Jesus together and worship the Lord together. You see, in the, in the gospel, there is a vertical component. We have been reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's a, a vertical component. We've been justified before God so that we can have fellowship with the Lord. But there is also a horizontal component. Our fellowship with God necessarily means we have fellowship with all of God's children. To be reconciled to God is to be reconciled to each other. To have God as our heavenly Father and to have Jesus as our faithful elder brother means that we have one another by definition as brothers and sisters in the Lord. It means that we are family, right? Our sin brings division and hatred and violence and bitterness, but the gospel brings unity and love and peace and mutual encouragement. Amen? This morning... We are coming to this reality that the early Christians devoted themselves to each other. They devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching, but to fellowship. These two things go hand in hand. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Gospel doctrine is meant to lead to gospel culture. You see, a devotion to the apostles' teaching is coupled with a devotion to fellowship. In other words, gospel theology is meant to produce gospel community, gospel family. Now, this text lays out at least eight unique marks of Christian fellowship. Will I get through all eight? I don't know. But I'm going to try. <clears throat> so, eight unique marks of Christian fellowship. And as I, as I outline these, I'm going to outline them briefly. And again, these are flyby. I'm trying to give you some categories. What I want you to see is that each one of these things directly flow from our faith in Christ, directly flow from gospel doctrine. The first is, again, what are we talking about? Eight marks of Christian fellowship. Not qualifications for Christian fellowship, but what are things that mark Christian fellowship? What, what happens when a group of people together confess the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Messiah? What, did, what happens in that group? 
Eight marks. The first one, commitment. Commitment. Look at verse 42. Stating the obvious here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So here we come again to that word devoted. You saw last week, right? They are devoted to fellowship. Last week I defined devotion as a persevering commitment to something. In other words, in their, when, when, I, when this text says they devoted themselves to fellowship, they were self-consciously committing themselves to each other for the long haul. Why were they doing that? Why do I want you to do that? Well, they were doing that because they had experienced Jesus' devotion to them. You have to remember that among the early Christians were the disciples who all, to the last one, abandoned Jesus. And that among the early Christians were many of those who were in the crowd that cried out, crucify him. They had abandoned Jesus. They had cursed him. But he never wavered in his devotion to them. Even in the garden, when God held out to him the very cup of wrath that he would have to drink, knowing they would leave him, he resolved to go and die in their place. He was devoted to them. And he did. And if you are in Christ this morning, if you are a child of God this morning because you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, it is because He committed, He pledged Himself to you in love. Even at the cost of His own life. He was devoted to you, even to death under the fullness of God's judgment. He, he volunteered for it. He, he chose it. He endured it for your sake. He was devoted to you. Have you experienced Christ's unwavering commitment to you? Have you known Jesus' devotion to you? Not only on the cross, but, but in His glorious resurrection, whereby He comes and, and promises I will never leave you nor forsake you. Brothers and sisters, how many reasons have you given Jesus to walk away from you? Today, this week, this month, this, how, many, how many times, how many reasons have you given Jesus to throw his hands up and say, you know what, I'm done? Countless. Has he ever walked away? Has he ever left? Brothers and sisters, he's devoted to you. And it was the experience of that devotion that produced in the early Christians a radical devotion to one another. This experience vertically of God's devotion to them in Christ moved out in a horizontal devotion and commitment to one another. It's the experience of that unimaginable devotion that works in us a desire to commit to each other. And sadly, this is one of the things that I think American churches struggle with the most. No doubt because we live in a society that has a phobia of commitment and relates to virtually everything as consumers. We want to keep our options open, and so we treat church the same way we treat like a gym membership or a grocery store. We'll join, 
But if something better comes along, we're, we're, we're going to go to the place that has the best deal, that has the best you know, things that, that, that will suit my needs. The commitment feels constraining and suffocating to us. But the exact opposite is true, brothers and sisters. I want you to see that while you're, the society we live in, the culture we live in, would have you believe that commitment is suffocating, the exact opposite is true. Here's the irony. At the same time that we resist commitment, what we want are authentic, real, deep, intimate relationships with one another. But don't you know that the prerequisite, the necessary component for those kinds of relationships is commitment? It's when we have committed to one another, when we have said to one another, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. That's when you feel free to take off the mask. That's when you feel free to be vulnerable. That's when you feel free to expose your weaknesses and your flaws and your sins. That's when you feel free to confess sin to one another without the fear that you're going to expose your dirt and that other person's going to be like, I'm out of here. That's too messy for me. That's why marriage is one of the most intimate of all, it is the most intimate of all human relationships because two people face one another and they make a vow and they say, no matter what, in sickness and in health, in riches and in poverty, no matter what, no matter what comes, I'm with you. You see, commitment is the environment for the kind of relationships that the New Testament calls us to. Commitment is the, is the arena, it's the environment in which those kinds of deep, intimate, vulnerable relationships can be formed. Now, this is not a sermon on membership, but this is in part why we take membership in the church as seriously as we do. Membership is the formal way that we say that to one another. Membership is the way that we say to one another hey, I'm with you. The way we commit to one another and say, hey, no matter what happens, I'm committing to you to pursue your spiritual good in Jesus, come what may. And uh, I'm not, I'm not, don't hear me, this is not legalistic. I'm not, there are going to be times that you know, a job takes you elsewhere. There are, there are good reasons to leave a church. But I'm saying that at the core, what membership is, is people in Jesus saying to one another, I'm committing to you. And you're committing to me for the sake of our mutual good in Jesus. Do you see that? Now, going through a membership process doesn't automatically like, produce that reality. And so we must continually look to Christ and in response to his loving devotion to us, commit and devote ourselves to one another. It's mark number one, commitment. Number two, unity. Eight marks of Christian fellowship. The first is commitment. Second, unity. Look at verse 44. It says, And all who believed were together. And all who believed were together. The, the, the early Christians were marked by a peculiar unity. And I say peculiar because it was a unity that brought all different sorts of people together. Right, so just as a, an early example, think of Jesus' own disciples. Think about the, the men that Jesus brings around himself. 
You know, you've got Matthew the tax collector, who is a, a, an employee of the Roman state, who is in closest fellowship with Simon the Zealot, an outspoken opponent of the Roman state. It would be like, you know, this is even a, uh, this would even be a, not even radical enough, but think Democrat, Republican, right? Just total opposite ends of the political spectrum, yet in deep fellowship with one another. And then you see that reality just only intensifying as you read through the book of Acts, right? As you move through, you see Gentiles are acknowledged as rightful heirs of the promise of the gospel. And so what bound these early Christians together as you move through and you see something like the church in Antioch where there are people of all different races coming into this, uh, coming into this um into the city and socioeconomic classes and ages and genders, all coming built around and centered around the gospel world, centered around Christ. What is it that they that bound them together? It's actually Acts 2.41, the verse just before we read this, that they all had received the word. They had all received the word of the gospel. They had believed it and had been baptized into Christ and therefore were united together. When Paul comes to this issue of unity in his letter to the Ephesians, listen to what he says. He says, uh, Ephesians 4.1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The point here is that there was a unity that transcended worldly categories. It wasn't a unity that was built around ethnicity or social standing or wealth or age or gender or season of life or culture or language or any other temporal category. What bound them together was their common experience of God's grace to them in Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you know what is the bedrock of our unity together as a church? It is that collectively we are all saying, we sang this in His mercy is more. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. It's us collectively saying, I was the weakest. I was the vilest. I was the poor. I had no spiritual good. I was spiritually dead And then he came and he saved me. He came and he poured out grace upon me. And I saw his grace to me there displayed at the cross. I saw the forgiveness that was there at the cross. And and that's the thing, that we have that shared experience, that we have that shared common confession that Jesus saw us in our muck and in our mess and in our sin and that he saved us. That's what binds us together. Above all else, not common interests, not hobbies. It's great. We can have hobbies that we share and interests that we share. But what binds us together, what makes us brothers and sisters in the Lord is that we have the same Savior, the same Father. We sang a few moments ago, yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. We we have fellowship with God, we have union with God, and therefore we have a mystic, sweet communion 
with those brothers and sisters whose rest has been won. Have you experienced, I wonder, the divine mystery of that communion that exists in brothers and sisters in the Lord? A while back, I had an opportunity to travel with uh, some, some friends to India to spend some time with the brothers and sisters there. And there were a lot of notable things about that trip, but one of the things that stands out to me about that trip is how quickly and mysteriously I grew to love those people and they grew to love me. There could not be more cultural difference. Language barrier, cultural barrier, social class barrier, just everything imaginable. And yet in the times that we spent together, reading the word through translators, singing together, different languages, there was a mystic sweet communion because we we knew, you, you know my Jesus, don't you? And I, I know the Jesus you're praying to. And you're my brother and you're my sister. There's, there's a, a unity, a mystic, sweet communion that, that defies worldly explanation. It's a unity that was bought by Jesus at the cross. In Christ, we have been made one with each other. It's, it's not that we are striving for unity, it's a better way to say it is we're, we're striving to live out the reality of the unity that is already there. You are brothers and sisters in the Lord. You are unified. You have been reconciled to one another. Now live out that reality. So that's the, the second mark. Um, commitment, unity. Here's the third. Verse 44, uh, we see intentionality. Commitment, Unity, intentionality. Verse 44, and all who believed were together. So you see that organizing themselves around this common confession. It's all who believed they were together. All who believed were together. And I want you to think about what this means and what it must have involved for these early Christians. They, they, They were together, not just once, not just twice, but the picture that you get here in these verses is that they were together a lot. They spent time together a lot, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. These were not people that saw each other once a week. Their lives were profoundly intertwined with one another because they intentionally spent time together. Now, I might be stating the obvious here, but relationships require an investment of time. Relationships require an investment of time. Think about the closest relationships that you have in your life. They were undoubtedly forged over time. They they didn't pop into existence out of thin air. You prioritize giving time to those relationships. Now, an investment of time does not guarantee a depth of relationship, but a refusal to invest time certainly guarantees a lack of depth in relationship. And Jesus' own ministry demonstrates this fact. When Jesus calls his disciples to himself, he began the formation of this new community that centered on him, and they spent lots of time together. Three years. 
in each other's lives every day. Consider why Jesus came into the world to begin with. He came with the express purpose and the foreordained intention of rescuing his people into an eternity with him. In other words, the great goal of the gospel is fellowship with God in Christ together. Not for a moment, but for all eternity. And we sip at that cup and taste that goodness when we are together on this side of glory. Now, again, we are Americans, for better or worse, and I know what's happening in some of your heads. You're saying to yourself, whew, I'm busy, but okay, you give me the number. What's the number? How much time do I need to give? How much time do I need to spend in order to say that fellowship is important to me? Like, what's the, what, what do I have to do? Like, how, is it one night a week, two nights a week? What is it? If, if those questions are running through your head, and I, I know, they're, they're the same questions that run through my head. Can I ask you a question? Can I ask myself a question? When you read this text, is the sense you get that these folks were spending time with one another because it was a duty or a chore? Is the sense you get that their spending time together was a, a box to be checked? I don't think so. I, I think they intentionally prioritized time with their brothers and sisters in Christ because they loved each other. Because they, they needed each other. Because spending time together was not a chore but a blessing. It was refreshing to their souls. It was nourishing to their hearts. And I think we lack in this area at times because we're spoiled. You know, another um, example from that, that same trip to India, you know, we, we had a number of evening services, and there would be like 80 to 100 people that would pack themselves into this living room. And they would, and, and many of them were coming, you know, India doesn't work on a, on a five-day work week. You know, it's, a, it's a, like a seven-day, you're working. And so many of them were coming after 10 to 12 hours of work in some grungy factory. The service is like at 8 o'clock, scheduled for 8 o'clock, but they waited, but they waited for each other. So it didn't start until like 8.45 or something because they want to make sure all the brothers and sisters are there. And, and then when they're together, there was this overwhelming sense that we are just, we're glad to be together. The day has been brutal I'm wiped, I got a ton of things going on, and I'm overwhelmed, and yet it's so good to be here together, and we can take a deep breath together, take a deep breath, and, 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 and set our eyes again on Jesus Christ, on the Lord who saved us together. The time together was not a chore, but it was a sip of cold water to a thirsty soul. They were not asking like, is it one night a week? Is it two nights a week? They were like, can we get together tonight? I need to be with my brothers and sisters. Now, pri prioritize relationships in the church, not because you're a bad Christian if you don't. Like, there, there's no rule. There's no law. This is not, I'm not giving you a law. 
prioritize, prioritize them because life together as brothers and sisters is one of the greatest blessings that Jesus purchases for us on the cross. Not because you have to, but because you get to. And when you do, you get to taste the goodness of, of, of an eternity together in God's presence with brothers and sisters. That's what all of this is straining towards. But also understand this means that there will be good things in your life that you will have to say no to. Like so often the Christian life is a choice, not between like what is obviously right and wrong. I mean, that's there. But a lot of times it's a choice between what is good and what is best. So there will be times where you have to say, where you get to say no to good things, for better things, for the blessing of spending time. And again, listen, there's no, there's no law here. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to show you the heart behind these brothers and sisters who delighted to spend time together. Who were not like, what? so how many nights a week is it? But who prioritized their lives around spending time together because they were devoted to one another. The gospel compelled them to devote themselves to one another. It's commitment, unity, intentionality. Number four, sacrificial service. Fourth mark, sacrificial service. Verse 44, look again. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This was not the mandatory seizing of one another's goods. It was a willingness among individuals to divest themselves of resources for the good of others. And we don't talk about this much, but it was also a willingness and a humility to humbly receive from brothers and sisters in need. Sometimes that's harder, isn't it? We like it. it, it there's something wonderful about being the one who is able to provide a need. Sometimes it's harder to be the one that's like, I have a need, and to receive from someone in the body who says, I, I want to meet that need. Now, now, what in the world has the ability to produce that kind of sacrificial service that we see here in this passage? That kind of sacrificial service that takes on the burden of meeting others' needs, even at great cost to yourself. Let me remind you at this point that I'm not giving you qualifications for Christian fellowship. I'm giving you marks of Christian fellowship. I'm showing you uh, through, I'm showing you what the fruit of the gospel is in the new community that the gospel forms. And what I want you to see behind these actions are the hearts that have been shaped by the gospel and by a sight of Jesus who we read in 2 Corinthians 8. We were thinking about divesting oneself of, of your resources. 2 Corinthians 8, we read this, that Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, their heart toward one another was shaped by Jesus' heart toward them. They remembered that, that he did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when that truth comes home to you, when that reality settles down in your heart, that Jesus divested himself of everything so that he could give it to you, 
what it produces is a heart that longs to move towards others in taking on the burden of their needs and meeting them graciously as God gives opportunity. Jesus not only lived a life of of physical poverty, but he was utterly impoverished on the cross. That's what was happening. On the cross, he lost the blessing of his Father and received instead his curse so that you could be spared the curse and could receive God's blessing. He became so poor so that you could become rich. Not, Not rich in material wealth, No, he became poor so that you might become rich in knowing that God accepts you, that God welcomes you, that God receives you as his own child, and you are therefore an heir of the kingdom of God, that you have Christ's own inheritance. And when that reality comes home to you, not only do you see how fleeting wealth and the possessions of this world are you. Not only does it help you to hold on loosely to what this world has to offer, but you are constrained by love to move out towards others in the same way that Christ has moved towards you in sacrificial service, in the pursuit of others' physical and spiritual good, even if it means great cost to yourself. He said, where at once you were oblivious, where at once you were apathetic, to the needs of others. Now you see them and you ask the Lord that you might be the instrument through which you are, through which those needs can be met. Sometimes you get to be the person that God has graciously equipped to meet a need, and sometimes you are the person that God has graciously determined to have a need that the body can meet. The gospel both empowers us for sacrificial service and humbles us so that we are willing to receive help from our brothers and sisters. So that's sacrificial service. Commitment, unity, intentionality, sacrificial service. And the next mark is, what is that, number five? Love. This is love. There there is a very famous work of art done by a 19th century French painter named Georges Pierre Seurat. Any painting uh, people here? Uh, it's, it's, it's the greatest example of a particular style of painting known as pointillism. Uh, maybe when I start describing this painting, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Essentially, it's a collection of millions of tiny little dots. And if you're like six inches away from this painting, what you'll see is just sort of like this arbitrary amalgam of painted dots. But if you take a step back six feet, what you will see is a very beautiful portrait of French men and women and children enjoying leisure activities on the shore of an island. Now, if you put this text six inches from your face, you will not see the words, and they loved each other. But if you step back six feet and look at the whole of this text and ask, what is going on here? What you're going to come away with is a beautiful portrait and picture of a people who deeply loved one another. They loved one another. And we shouldn't be surprised that this is the case. This was Jesus' command to his disciples, that they love one another. 
Jesus meant for his new community formed by his own love to be characterized above all by love for one another. At John 13, 34, we read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And th- that's the relationship. The love they had received from Jesus was to pr- supposed to produce in them an abiding love for God and an abiding love for one another. It's a love that's rooted in God's love for us in Christ. We'll sing this in just a moment. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And notice John's language there, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. God's love has not only made us his children, but in doing so, he has bound us up together in love so that we are now fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. God's love to us in Christ has made us together family. I'm reading this book right now uh, about the church, and the author gives this great illustration. He has, he has five children, and his youngest boy is uh, an adopted son from Ethiopia. And uh, after a few months of, of having him, it was Christmas time, and they went to visit their family in Burton's. I was thinking of you guys as I was thinking about this story. Like, it was like, like a fast forward, like what is it going to be like, right? So Christmas time. Four months, uh, they've been around, and they're going to visit family for the first time. And when they arrive at the house of this little boy's new grandparents, never met before, they open the door, and there are lights shining, and music is playing, and there were people everywhere, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins. And as they come in the house, the little boy looked up to his dad and said, Papa, are all these people our family? And he turns and looks to his son. He says, yes, son, these are, th- this is our family. That's the church. That's the church. The moment you were joined to Christ by faith, you became a part of God's family, which means now that everyone who has God as father and who has Jesus as their elder brother, you have as a brother and sister in the Lord. And now you know how family is. Every family's got the crazy uncle, Every family's got the wild aunt. Every family's got those rowdy cousins. Some of you are like, I think maybe I'm the crazy uncle. Maybe I'm the rowdy cousin. But that's the church. Right? That's the church. The, po- the point is, yeah, the families are crazy. And you've got, you got all kinds of different people in that family. But the point is that we love each other in Jesus. The point is that we are family together in Jesus we, we bear with one another. We, we forgive one another. We are patient with one another. We say hard things to one another. We weep with each other and we rejoice with one another. We celebrate, celebrate each other in victories and we console one another in losses. When one of us is up, we're all up. When one of us is down, we are all down. Why? Because we are family in him. Because he has made us his own family. Now for some of you, real quick before I move on from this point, For some of you, the concept of family is just sweet. It's wonderful. It's nostalgic. You you feel feelings of joy and safety and love because you had a good family growing up. And what I want to say to you is that the church is supposed to be an even better version of that. I'm not trying to diminish the love that you have with your family. family. Nuclear family is wonderful. But nuclear families are not going to continue on into eternity. The church will. 
the family that exists, the bonds that exist will move on into eternity. It's supposed to be an even better, an even more perfected version of that. But then there are others of you where the concept of family brings feelings of pain and trauma and hurt and shame. And what I want to say to you is that though earthly parents have perhaps failed you, abandoned you or hurt you, in the family of God, you need to know that your, your heavenly Father will never hurt you, will never abandon you, will never forsake you. Now, don't misunderstand. He, he will bring pain at times into your life, but not to hurt you. He will bring pain the way a doctor brings pain who's setting a bone to heal it. Wherever there's pain, it's your heavenly Father doing good to you. You're, you're doing spiritual good to you. But what I want to say to you is that you have a heavenly Father who will never fail you. As far as your brothers and sisters in the Lord, they will fail you. They will sin against you. They will frustrate you. They will annoy you. But by God's grace, as we learn to rely more deeply on Jesus and to grow in the grace of fellowship together, we get little tastes. Even sometimes the Lord gives us a whole appetizer of the true blessing of our fellowship with one another and what it will be like when that love for one another is perfected in glory. Love. Commitment, unity, intentionality, sacrificial service, love. Let me give you one more. Friendship. Verse 46, look at this. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes. The implication of this text is that they went to the temple together, and so they broke bread in their homes together. It was common and normal and expected that regularly they would be welcoming one another into their homes around the table for fellowship. This is another example uh, of, of sort of zooming out. What do we see? We see this portrait of deep friendship. Now, I almost called this section hospitality, but then it wasn't quite right. See, when we think about having people in our homes, we think hospitality. That's what I initially thought of. And, and maybe this is splitting hairs, but the word hospitality is taken from the Latin root hospice, which just basically just means a guest or a stranger or a foreigner. And hospitality, uh, even if you think about what the hospitality industry is, you know, the hospitality industry goes back into the ancient world wherein locals would take in weary, uh, you know, travelers and, and give them a place to stay, and they would show them hospitality. Now, I certainly want to commend to you hospitality. I think hospitality is eminently biblical and one of the greatest tools that we have for evangelism uh, in our society. But I don't think what we see here in this text is a picture of welcoming strangers, now, this looks to me like what happens when my friends come over. You see, um, if, if, if we're hosting guests, we're hosting strangers. The Bible calls us, you know, we welcome strangers. We're hosting strangers. When they come in, we, we offer them something to drink. 
and we, we you know, bring out some snacks here, here's some snacks, and we make them make sure that they know where the bathroom is, and there's a, there's a formality, we make sure everything's cleaned up for them, you know, there's a, you know try and make the house as, as tidy as possible, so that there's a welcoming environment so they know that, you know, that we appreciate them and care for them and want them to feel welcome in our home, but when my friends come over, it's like, hey, drinks are in the fridge, you know, laundry's all over the living room floor, and, you know, this is, this is just welcome to our house. This is like life. And that's not because we're being unhospitable, right? What, and you've experienced this, haven't you, right? When you, when you come, do you feel unwelcomed in someone's house when you come in, it's like the dining room table's got stuff all over it? No, it's actually the opposite. You feel like a part of the family. You don't stick out. You're like, I'm here, I'm sitting down, I'm going to go grab something out of the fridge. Anyone want anything? Right? That's the picture I think we get here. That's the vibe, is this deep abiding friendship, a, 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 an expectation that there will be such a familiarity, such a, a closeness, such an a, uh, intimacy with one another that the parts of our lives that maybe when we're showing hospitality, we would kind of like clean up. Like, no, that's exposed. This is who we are. This is what we are. This is, you, you know us. We're family. Friendship. And brothers and sisters, this, this idea of friendship is deeply embedded in the gospel. What does Jesus, we read it earlier in the service, what does Jesus say to his disciples before he goes to the cross? He says, greater love has known this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. He says, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. What, what does Jesus say to us in the gospel. He says, you are my friends. What's mine is yours. My righteousness, yours. My blessings, yours. My inheritance, yours. My resurrection, yours. Friendship. We're family. We're friends. And when Jesus befriends you, it produces in you a, a desire and a compulsion to develop deep friendships with brothers and sisters in the Lord. As I close, let me remind you that, that what I've given you are marks of a Christian fellowship, not, not a new set of rules. I think I got through six of them. If you come back this evening, maybe I'll give you the other two and we'll, then we'll pray together. I'm not giving you a new set of rules. These, these are characteristics that are produced in a community that together have their eyes fixed on Jesus. They are the fruit of faith in Christ. It's gospel doctrine that produces gospel culture. Jesus was and is and always, listen, hear this. If you don't hear anything I say this entire time, hear these words. Jesus was and is and always will be devoted to his people. He will never fail them. He will never leave them. Jesus is utterly and completely devoted to you and your spiritual good. And the great emblem of that fact is that he laid down his life for you. And when you, ex when you see and experience Christ's devotion to you, what it produces is a life of devotion to fellowship, a devotion to each other. So Joy Community Fellowship, as we look to Christ together, as we look to Jesus together, may we live lives devoted to one another for the glory of his name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we, we do thank you for your devotion to us. And we know that apart from your pledging yourself and loving us and committing to us, we would have no hope. And Lord, we pray that your love to us would have its intended effect in our lives, that we would move out towards one another in love and devotion and commitment and unity and intentionality and sacrificial service and friendship and love. Lord, may this church be marked by love that the world would know that we are your disciples. Help us to love the way that you have loved us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.